Dude, we are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. Hello and welcome to Debated Podcast. I'm Conrad, I'm joined as usual by Will, and today our guest is Hannah Shah, who is the co-host of the Progressive Britain Podcast, which is the Progress Podcast, the Labour-affiliated group. I don't know if it's officially affiliated, but associated with Labour. Um, so, um, before we get, get thanks for joining us, by the way. Before we get into the main sort of meat of the podcast, um, what made you get involved with progress originally? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think it's kind of weird because if I were to characterise us as a group, yes, we're a affiliated group, we're a campaigning organisation, but actually, if you're a politico or you like politics, you'd probably classify us as a faction, which all sounds a bit Renaissance and Machiavelli and Game of Thrones, right? Um, and so it seems quite an odd thing for someone to do, particularly someone to do as a job. Um, but I spent a lot of my time and where I come from my like personal background insofar as you can say that someone in their 20s has a background. Um, it's very much in charity campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a trustee of a charity that I got involved with when I was about 17, raising money for street children around the world. And then when I went to university, I did lots of work on educational access, particularly around um, the access to, uh, to higher education that refugees have um, and sort of have been interested more broadly in this question of how young people make social change. Um, and I've always been a Labour voter, but I wasn't a Labour member until a little bit later than lots of my colleagues and friends in the party. Um, I actually joined after Jeremy Corbyn became leader and actually partly as a reaction because I grew up personally in um, a household that wasn't very well off. Um, my mum was disabled and wasn't able to work. My dad doesn't have a degree and came here as a migrant, so he worked in a factory when I was younger. So I very much see the sort of practical impact that Labour politics and sort of progressive politics has had on my life. And it was sort of in defence of that politics that I ended up where I am now, which is sort of trying to fight for progressive values within the Labour Party. Uh, now, one of the campaigns that you are involved with is Labour Say. Now, mm. at the moment, we're having quite uh, uh, an interesting development uh, regarding Brexit with uh, the, the uh, case going through the Supreme Court at the mm. moment and the appeal in uh, the Scottish Council as well. What do you think the general feeling regarding another referendum or some sort of like resolution uh, to Brexit is at the moment? Mm, I think that's a really difficult question. I think when you talk about the feeling regarding a referendum, it really depends on who you're talking to, right? Mm -hmm. So um, with my hat on as working at Progress, I know about 80% of the Labour membership is pro-Remain. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also know that the Labour leadership has done um, a sort of interesting job at triangulation on the issue over the past couple of years because the Labour Party knows that lots of its key seats are in leave areas. Um, and what I've seen from being around the media and um, I occasionally for my sins do talk radio with Julia Hartley Brewer mm-hmm. um, and she is sort of a rabid Brexiteer. Sorry, Julia, if, if you're listening. Um, um, but she 
she sort of epitomizes what I think is a polarization of the conversation that's happened since the referendum. Um, I think there is a way forward. And I actually think there's a way forward democratically that now can only come from a public vote on a deal, not just because um, I think that's a good way to sort of constitutionally and politically achieve a remain result, although that mm-hmm. is my personal preference, but more because I think it's gotten so confused and people have received so much conflicting information that actually when you come to the end of this process, it becomes very difficult to feel like people have control of their own destinies and over the future of their own country, which is actually what I think this whole vote was about. People feeling that they have control over their lives and why they don't or do feel that they have that control. Actually, until you have that opportunity to make a choice at the end point, um, Mm. do I think Remain would win again? I'm not actually sure, but I think that it's an important exercise to have nonetheless. There is a very long-winded way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> um, the thing is, with, with, this, with sort of an, another referendum, could you not argue that that w- could just divide the country even more and just bring up, like, you've already got this sort of, div- you know, you've, you've mentioned the polarisation in the country, sort of two halves, and the, another referendum could just sort of polarise that even more, and especially if the question was not seen to be one that was fair. You, you, said, you mentioned having a vote on the deal, but obviously... There's a lot of people seem to want no deal. If that wasn't an option on the referendum, if it wasn't like three choices, then they could feel disenfranchised. Mm, absolutely. I think that is a conversation for further down the, the line, right? I, I think seeing and making sure that people perceive fairness through every part of this um, conversation is really important. I think a way to potentially um, think about that or make a choice on what the referendum should look like on the next stage of the democratic process might be using a citizens assembly they did that quite successfully in ireland with abortion which was a very contentious issue mm-hmm. um and i think really see this conversation about polarization um without wishing to get all identity politics i think like i'm a woman i'm a british pakistani and like those bits are parts of my identity but i don't tend to sort of throw them out there very much that they're not core parts of my politics which are based around social justice but actually it informs me and when I respond to when people say oh will you see more polarization I'll say actually if you're a minority particularly if you're a visible minority in this country um you you've seen that polarization already right I don't think uh it really like it can get much worse in terms of um, yes, you could get writing tweets, etc. But actually, the effects of the Brexit vote are already being felt really acutely. And I don't think just by not having another vote and sweeping it un- under the carpet that we'll be able to solve these problems. Like we won't be able to solve the problem of Telmala re- reporting spikes in Islamophobic incidents. We won't be able to make, you know, migrants. Like I come back talking about my parents. Like my parents have lived. To, to remain in this country they never applied for british passports because they never thought they needed to and in their mm. minds they're commonwealth citizens who have come to this country to work hard and raise a family and they feel that they have some kind of historic contract i think with the british state but actually for the first time in my life within the past couple of months my dad has sounded unsure and felt insecure in this country and i think that 
hints at a polarisation that I think will exist whether or not we have another vote and we need to tackle that separately. Uh, now, one of the parties that have done quite well uh, out of polarisation has been the Liberal Democrats and their mm. conference is happening at the moment. How do you think um, members of the Labour Party who are in favour of uh, a second referendum and who want to remain in the European uh, Union can appeal to potential swing voters who might see the Liberal Democrats more as the party of Remain? Um, I think that's a very good point and I can see why there are people I know who have been in the Labour Party for a long time or a short time who've chosen to either leave the Liberal Democrats as members or actually on a personal level lots of my personal friends who aren't very sort of political i.e. they're not card-carrying party members I mean we need to remember not many of these people not many people in this country are card-carrying party members mm. but who have historically always been Labour Party voters and who for the first time have actually broken that tradition of voting name. I mean, the first time would have been during the European elections to vote Lib Dem. And are now talking to me when I say there's a general election coming are actually saying we want to vote Lib Dem because we see them as a party representing our interests and representing the kind of Britain we want to see. Mm. Um, and I do think part of it is getting off the fence on Brexit. But I think it's also part of it is the Labour Party thinking about not only how we create a fair and socially just society, but also thinking about how we bring people in to do that. I think the perfect example and, and sort of the little bit of Blairite in me will come out now is the <laughs> national minimum wage. And it's to, to make that change. And you can say what you like about how whether it's been increased enough over the past few years, but the success of the national minimum wage, and I think, and the reason why it's become such a structural a structurally integral part of our labour market is because it was done not only with the consent of the voters and the politicians, but it was also done with the consent of industry as well. Mm. And actually, when you're thinking about making structural social change, and I think that's something I believe in that the Labour Party believes in too, you have to gain consent from people to do that. And you have to make the effort to persuade people around to your point of view. And unfortunately, I think that while we have some brilliant policies, that actually the work isn't being done to actively go out and persuade people as to why these policies are a good thing or why they're important. And I think it's sort of reaching out and removing some of this negative things. Oh, well, if you don't agree with every part of my plan, you should just, you know, piss off and join the Tories because you're clearly a Tory mm. is quite unhelpful and quite juvenile and actually what it does is alienate people from a project that should be working together for everyone. So, we, we, so we're talking about the Liberal Democrats and we've had mm. recently, you've had Chukwumana and um, Angela Smith, former Labour MPs, join the Lib Dems. Do you think that there's a worry that they're sort of the Blairite progress or whatever you want to call it, wing of the party might sort of seem feel like there's no place left for them in Labour with the sort of rise of things like mandatory selection being tried to bring in and stuff like that, that it will, it, the, the party is going to become more narrow and, and sort of Corbynite in its focus? So I guess there is definitely a feeling that the party will become more narrow. Um, one person you didn't see mentioned Chucker and Angela and say Chucker's probably um, been historically sort of a very uh, a progress MP, but also before that he was a Compass MP, so he was a Brownite MP. Now, as someone's from sort of the new generation of this, I don't necessarily think the Labour 
flare out and brown out helpfully more. Mm. Um, but I do see a more sort of progressive wing of the party that I put myself on. And then a more like state socialist wing of the party, which I'd put a lot of the Corbyn left on. Um, but I do think that there are sort of lots of younger people on the Corbyn left who actually, I think, in a very similar way to and the the difference isn't necessarily too much one of policy, but more one of personnel and culture. And I think those problems are difficult to overcome, but they can be overcome. Um, I completely agree with you that I think being driven by a set group of people who believe in the state, let me just go back and try and rephrase that. But I think there is a project that is being driven by a group of people towards a kind of state socialism that actually is quite far from the way lots of the membership, even further on the left of the party, really want to see. And a lot of that is alienating MPs. Um, I actually think lots of MPs like myself have a very strong attachment to the Labour Party. Mm. Um, Believe it in it as a party of working people, believe that it is the best force for progressive change this country has ever seen, and actually leaving is such a huge step. I mean, one of the MPs did mention was Usana Berger. And I was at a party conference last year, and I was there and she came to a few of our, our events, and she, she had to have a police escort. She had to have the police drop her off and pick her up and watch her and make sure that she was okay because of the abuse she received. And one, that was just horrible. It's horrible to be as an MP at your own party's conference to mm. feel this uncomfortable. But also, two, what was interesting was the reaction on social media afterwards, where sort of the left wing, the, the hard left wing sort of troll army came out and said she didn't have peace protection. Here's all the reason why. And sort of made freedom of information requests and said, oh, you know, they weren't really armed as like, that was it real police having someone walking with her isn't the same and I just said well I was there there were two police officers with her all the time and that testimony wasn't enough to convince them that that was true mm. um and I think it's that sort of some people in the Labour Party call it the crank left and it's the infiltration of the crank left who abuse MPs and abuse people and particularly abuse Jewish members uh that I think are the real problem and it has to be Basically, I think the integrity of the Labour Party depends on tackling that. Uh, now, one of the things that um, we've mentioned and we've talked quite a bit throughout the podcast mm. has been not only polarisation, but again, as you uh, mentioned, abuse felt by uh, MPs and members in different parties across the political spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think we can go about ensuring that politics does not devolve into sort of... Um, much more abuse and becomes far more abusive than it is already mm. and perhaps turn it more in a direction of cooperation and uh, less tribalism? I mean, that's a really, really hard question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think um, we're stuck in a problem of our own making. We, I don't know if you two agree, but it feels like British politics is based on a tribal adversarial system. Mm. Um, like the way the House of Commons is set up is set up for tri tribalism and for adversarial ar arguments. Mm. I don't necessarily think well, there's an inherent problem with that, but I think there's a problem with that when norms of discussion, conversation, and politics are e eroded. Mm. Um, 
And I think we've seen that. I think we've seen that through Twitter. People, I really actually don't like Twitter as a format at all. One of the few projects people to not like it, not to like it rather, um, because I don't think you can have a proper discussion or a proper conversation with someone who doesn't agree with you about a point of politics. I just don't think it's possible to do it in that many characters. It's there for the hot take, but it's not there for any kind of detailed discussion or disagreement, which I think means that people can often speak to each other in bad faith. Mm -hmm. Um, People are hidden very often behind their screens, um, which makes it very difficult to, you know, it's much harder to have a conversation, have an argument with someone who's standing in front of you in the flesh than it is over any kind of online platform. Mm. Um, I think more than that, it's the lack of avenues um, and this is one thing I really, really care about and I tried to do some work on, is a lack of avenues for ordinary people to get involved in politics. And by that, I don't mean like becoming members of a party or signing a petition, um, but I mean really understanding how the system works. Like I don't think particular education in this country is good. I think it's very, very, very bad. And if you put my sort of conspiracy theorist hat on, I kind of think that sort of a reason behind that, that people actually found it easier not to give people the information they needed to do things. Mm. Um, but I think actually what we're reaping now is the consequence of not educating people about how they take action in their communities and how they take action through politics. I think um, it's really interesting that politics is sort of the way or the way I see politics. I'm sure someone before we wrote this and I've just absorbed it um, is you know, the way we arbitrate between the disagreements that we have, right? And if not, everyone has access to that method of arbitration, then we're going to have a problem. And that's what we're seeing now. And no, I don't have an answer to it, basically. I think we're really messed up and we should educate people that that's going to be a generational change as opposed to an immediate change. Going back to sort of polarisation within the Labour Party, um, uh-huh. there's a NEC motion that's sort of got a bit of traction on Twitter. You say you don't really like Twitter, but um, about getting rid of Labour students. And it's sort of been seen as Labour students have been associated with the progress sort of more on the sort of Blairite wing of the party in the youth party. Um, what's your view on this? Do you think that the Labour students does need to change or do you think that this is just petty from sort of John Landsman? Um, I think you can think both things are true. Um, I think it's you know incredibly petty from John Landsman, mm. you know, just before a general election to say, actually we want to get rid of the organisation that organises students around the country because it's in sort of the political control of a group that he doesn't agree with. Mm. Um, I don't think that's the right, and I think it comes back to sort of what I mean by the tone and the culture of the Labour Party at the moment, in that I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Like, you know, Labour students do great work. They organise students around the country. They contact Labour clubs. They move motions in the US. They do a lot of work on the doorstep. They really are the tireless activists in university towns come from Labour students. Um, do I think that I would like to see more pluralism in Labour students? Yes. Probably. But also, I think more than that, it's thinking about actually how to get involved in the Labour Party sort of outside that. So I was never in Labour students, um, which is sort of weird for everyone I meet. Um, it's actually saying, well, 
if you're a student, you're involved in the Labour Party, how to make sure Labour clubs and Labour students is as open as possible and actually how to make sure that all those roots in. So, you know, I'm a member of Young Labour, but I go to Young Labour and I have, I feel like my views aren't listened to very clearly mm. um, and that, you know, my political opinion isn't respected. And I think we need to come to a point coming back to what we said about the conversation about the polarization where within all these organizations we can have the discussion in a very um frank and open and honest and actually good faith way and i don't think that john landsman's operating in good faith here i think he's trying to score cheap points and actually now's not now in the middle of a brexit crisis and heading to a general election i don't think now's the time to be doing that um, so you mentioned um, sort of young Labour. What's the age cutoff for that out of interest? Because um, I'm in the Young Conservatives, and I know that goes up to 25. But there's been a lot of debate about sort of what counts as a young person. You know, like who's got in, what's got in common, what? Because you know, like obviously a 14 year old and a 30 yeah. year old professional haven't really got that much in common. In common, yeah. So I um, don't quite remember this. I think young Labour's 27. Mm, I think. Uh, and then I think if you, which is like a little bit older than young conservatives, of course, um, I think quite interesting is the young Fabians goes up to, so the Fabian Society and the affiliated society of the Labour Party, they do lots of policy work and a bit involved with them as well, and they go up to 31, um, which is significantly older than lots of other groups. I do think sort of, like I'm 25 now, um, that may be... Yes, I still feel like I have a couple of years left to go as a young person. I'm doing air quotes here, but obviously you can't see them. Um, mainly because I think, you know, the way we work and the way we live has changed so much. I, I feel, you know, younger, I'm insecure, I'm renting, um, I'm going to start my career. Whereas I think maybe, you know, 10 or even five years ago, someone who was my age would probably have been more likely to be, you know, in their own home or sort of a little bit further on in their sort of life path or whatever you'd like to call it. So I feel like it makes more sense because I feel that even though maybe a 14-year-old and 30-year-old don't have lots in common in terms of what they're experiencing in life, actually the same issues such as intergenerational fairness, changes to the world of work, uh, general insecurity about uh, what comes next, pensions, climate, all those issues are actually very common to all young people and that group is growing. Mm. Um, you mentioned that um, as a student you weren't involved with Labour students, but uh, an organisation that you are involved with is Students Supporting Street Kids, which is a, mm. a great um, charity. Uh, could you explain uh, to our listeners what work you do there? Sure. Um, I'm the trustee of Student Supporting Street Kids. Um, and what we do is it started by two students who, you know, went travelling, went to their gap year. Um, but this was years ago, sort of 20 years ago, and came back and said they'd been to these countries, be around the world. And I think the original ones, uh, uh, one of them is in Vietnam and I was in the Philippines and there are a couple of in Latin America as well, the uh, original charities and they're all the local projects supporting street connected children and so street connected children isn't necessarily children who are homeless on the street, but they might be very poor children who work on the street, have family working on the street and basically live much of their lives involved with the street. And then obviously there are a number of issues that go along with that, right? So a chance of exploitation, whether that's mm 
uh, labour being exploited, sexual exploitation, uh, problems with drugs, um, often being abused by the police and other authorities. Um, and basically, Students for Treat Kids was set up to provide a mechanism. So we've got no overheads because we're all volunteer trustees to um, enable students to raise money for young people around the world who were street and are street connected to do things. So it may be that um, it might be attend school, it might be, you know, creating a home for these young people, um, it might be really simple things like food and shelter. And I think it's, I've been involved with them for a little while now, and I think it's quite an interesting model in terms of the fact that we have personal relationships with all the organisations we work with. Mm. And we go and visit those organisations, and actually the students, so we have um, branches at a number of universities, four universities, so we've got one, the London universities are one big branch, Edinburgh and then Oxford and Cambridge at the moment. Um, and... Mm the students raise money for other students who in lots of ways are like them um, and they can see the impact and they can often go in actually what I think is one of the most important things they can go and see if they choose they can see the work of one of our partner organizations um, knowing that we have a personal relationship with them knowing that the money is being well spent and actually see where the money is being spent and do something helpful with the knowledge of the issues involved without falling into that trap of voluntourism mm -hmm. where you sort of turn up I mean we heard some awful stories that we've um, worked with some organizations in uh, Southeast Asia and some of them actually have stopped being I think it was Cambodia um, have stopped being residential or accepting new residential students in because there was such a problem with um, young people mainly from Australia traveling to volunteer in orphanages Mm. So they were finding children to put in orphanages so people could come and volunteer in them. Um, and that kind of practice is inherently exploitative. So it's mm. it's trying to support organisations without falling into that trap of exploitation, which I think is really important. Well, um, thank you for joining us anyway today. We're coming up to the end of the podcast. Um now, just before we go, um, Boris Johnson recently hit the headlines for comparing himself to the Incredible Hulk. Um, <laughs> now, what um, have you got a favourite superhero? Which superhero would you compare yourself to? Which superhero would I compare myself to? Oh, I don't think I could do that. Um, I actually, I'm a bit weird, and I quite like Doctor Strange. Mm. Um, just because I think he's really cool and can do cool things with time. Also, I really like the coat. I know that's it not a very nice coat. Um, <laughs> very nice coat, and I think it makes him look very suave. And I kind of like the idea that he's able to uh, control time with his mind because I could always use more of it. Yeah, well, <laughs> that I think that applies for everyone. That's the one thing that that probably could end political polarization. That, <laughs> that we all want a bit more time. Yeah. Um, Extend Brexit to thirty years rather than three. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think people would be ticking on that one. <laughs> but um, so yeah, thank you for joining us. If people want to um, sort of find out a bit more about you, what what can they do? Um, well, my Twitter handle is at headershell94, and uh, as you both so kindly mentioned, um, we present a weekly 
podcast at Progress. It's called the Progressive Britain Podcast, where we interview Labour MPs and activists doing great campaigning work around the country. And I recommend you have a listen. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. If you want to sort of get in contact, you can email us at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, I think, as well now. Mm-hmm. Um, you Ooh. can subscribe on um, Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, or I think we're on YouTube as well. So Yeah, we're on YouTube as well. Yeah, so, um, yeah, all the places that you can get podcasts, basically. Um, so, yeah, thank you everyone for listening, and we'll sort of, you'll hear us in the next episode.